All right, howdy, church. I am Pastor Mike. I don't know why I said howdy. I never really say that, but there you go. So I can remember exactly where I was standing in spring 2007, the very first time that I laid eyes on Sarah Elizabeth Wilson. It was in something like that, yes. It was in room 002 in the Metcalf Arts Center at Taylor University, where we were students. And it was during RA training. All the students who were going to be RAs the next school year, we had to go to this training. And so we were both going to be RAs. And I remember just one look across the room, didn't know her really at all. And I thought, I need to get to know that girl for sure. So I started getting to know her. We would talk in between the lines during the trainings, after, that sort of thing. And then uh, it was leading up to the time coming back to school that fall, and we had texted over the summer. We actually didn't text back then. We Facebook messaged. Um, I don't know if we talked on AIM or not, but the point is we communicated, and I had to lead worship when we came back in August for this leadership day that we had for all the RAs and some other leaders. And I'd never heard Sarah sing, but I knew she was in the elite choir, the chorale, so I thought, this is probably a risk worth taking. So I was like, would you like to lead worship with me? And she's like, why? You mostly just sing, you know, in choirs and stuff. I've never really led worship, which is funny to think about now, (laughs) but I'm willing to do that. And she did. It went really well. I was, I, was, I was just hoping, going into that first practice, oh, can she sing? Can she sing? We got there, and I went, oh, gosh, this girl can sing. This is amazing. And I had asked her out when we went to practice, hey, would you be willing you know, to go on a date, grab some dinner? She said, yeah. So on September 9th, we went on our first date, and we went to Panera Bread in Muncie. I remember I spent under $10, so you know it was a few years ago, because there's no way you'd spend under 10 bucks for two people at Panera nowadays. We had a great time. I thought, this is awesome. The next day, I see Sarah, and she says, hey, um, you think we could get together and talk? I think I'd really like to talk about some stuff. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. This is very bad. I mean, I was distraught. I thought she was going to break things off. Look, we've gone on one date. This was going well, and we're already going to have a DTR and define this relationship in a way that I don't want to define it. She's going to think it's not working out. And so we agreed we were going to meet up on September 11th. So September 11th comes the next day, and uh, I stopped by my best friend Hugh's room there in the dorm, and he is being the good friend. He's hearing me out, empathizing with my frustration and my concern, giving some advice, trying to help calm me down. But I was feeling very dramatic, which is very unlike me. I'm not a super dramatic guy most of the time. That's a lie. I'm always dramatic. But this day, I was like extra Mike dramatic, like Mike times eight. It was insane. And I remember it came to the point, I'm like, I knew I had to leave to go meet her. And I stood there and I gripped both sides of his doorway. And I looked at him and I said, Hugh, remember this is September 11th. I said, Hugh, the towers may have fallen six years ago today. But if I'm going down, I'm going down with everything on the table. And I slammed the door and I stormed out of the, out of the dorm. And thank God, in the hundred yards it takes to walk to the student union, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me and settled me down. And Sarah and I got our coffee at the little coffee shop. We went and we sat on this little knoll behind the student union, and and we talked, and she kind of shared her thoughts, what she thought was good, what she had some concerns about, and she asked me my thoughts, and I said, well, these are my thoughts. This is uh, how I kind of respond to that. She said, okay, well, what would you see this looking like? And I said, well, 
I think maybe we could keep hanging out, you know, a couple times a week, getting to know each other, and we'll see where it goes. And she said, that sounds good. So three weeks later, uh, we were dating exclusively. And 11 months dating, 11 months engaged, and now 11 years married. I'd say that worked out pretty dang well. <laughs> and, and when I look back at that time, pursuing my wife, I learned a lot. It was this crazy whirlwind as I reflect back on it. But the whole time, I knew what I hoped for. That first time I saw her, I knew from the start. I hoped, man, if this girl would just give me a shot to just get to know her and her get to know me. You know, and even though I couldn't see what the future held, even though I, I didn't know where that was going to go, I'd walked with Jesus long enough to know this is the type of girl that I want to do life with forever. I want her to be the mom of my kids. I want to do ministry with her. That's what I want. I had confidence in what I hoped for. I was sure of what I couldn't see. And what I realize now and what the author of Hebrews is going to steer us towards is, you know, that's really what faith is all about. Because the definition we're going to walk away with today for faith is this, is that faith is confidence in what we hope for. And it's assurance about what we don't see. Pastor Brad said something to me at the end of this last service. It really, it really hit me. I thought it was so good. He said, you know, Mike, every relationship that we enter into, we enter into by faith. You think about that? Almost practically every relationship you'll ever get into, you enter into that relationship by faith. It was that way for me and Sarah, and it's that way for all of us when we follow Jesus and we begin a relationship with him, and we continue in that relationship. Faith is, it is always involved so I want to pray for us, and we're going to dive into Hebrews 11 and see what Jesus wants to do today, all right? Jesus, we come to you. I thank you that we could be here today, Lord. I thank you that it's May. I thank you that it's warm outside, that the sun is out, God, um, even with all the rain and all the lawn mowing that that has required. I just thank you that um, little by little, winter has finally been left behind. And God, I pray now, just for today, as we wade into this and we dig into Hebrews 11, I pray that you will bring to mind what we've already talked about in this series. I pray that it'll fall fresh on us. And I just ask God that you would change us, do something in us so that when we walk out today, uh, we can be confident just in our ability to go and do what you're asking us to do. So in your name we pray. Amen. So if you wouldn't mind, turn into Hebrews 11, verse 1. It's that verse Brandon read a minute ago. If you want to go hard copy, awesome. If you want to go to InsideSCC.org and click Take Sermon Notes, we got them all there. That'll work fine too. And so when we kicked off this series, gosh, 11, 12 weeks ago, whatever it was, Lee did an awesome job at basically laying out what are the things that we're going to see in this? What are the two big goals that this author of this letter of Hebrews has? Well, one of those was elevate Jesus is better than anything else. And the second thing was challenge readers to stay faithful to Jesus no matter what happens in their lives. So those were the two things. Elevate Jesus is better than anything else and challenge us as the readers to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what happened. And when we look at 
kind of the big picture of the book, and this is a poster from the Bible Project, if you ever want to look this up. It lays out kind of the whole book and how it flows. And the last several weeks, we're going to zoom in here, and this is where we've been. So when we talk about how Jesus is better, we started by talking about, well, he's better because he's the Word of God. He's better because he's the hope for a new creation. He's better because he's the eternal priest. He is better because he is the perfect sacrifice. And every time the author talks about this, he would offer this encouragement of how Jesus is better and then a warning. Hey, hey, don't let go. Stay faithful. Hold on. And then this is how Jesus is better. Don't let go. Stay faithful. Hold on. It's been that pattern, back and forth, back and forth. And today, we get to look at a few examples of what true faith looks like when it's lived out well. Uh, This has often been called, Hebrews 11 is often called the Hall of Faith or the Faith Hall of Fame. And I hope that by the time we get done with this, that you will maybe elevate this above other Hall of Fames that are dear to you, like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. If on Sunday nights you watch TV with your mom like I did uh, growing up, you know, that good old Hallmark Hall of Fame, you know, maybe you'll even think that this is better than that. I I don't know. That might be asking a lot. But I think we need to dive in. Ready? Verse 1, Hebrews 11. Here we go. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, and it's assurance about what we don't see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what's seen wasn't made out of what was visible. So there it is, verse 1. The author says, I'm going to give you a definition of faith. I've been telling you to cling to faith. Let me just frame this for you. Faith is two things. It's confidence in what we hope for, and it's assurance of the things we don't see. And he he mentions, he says, you know, a lot of the folks, in verse 2, a lot of the folks who lived long ago, they had this kind of faith wants to give them their due, give them their props. Apparently, this type of faith that the author's talking about, it isn't easy, and it's not typical at all. Now, then he jumps to verse 3. He says, well, here's something that we believe by faith. Here's something we understand. It's that God gave a command, and the universe was created. So he says, you know, God, from the very beginning, when all this started, he showed us he's got the power. He has that. And when he did it, what did he create all of this out of? He created it out of nothing. We serve a God who literally created everything we see out of nothing. What does that tell us about who he is? What does it tell us about how he operates? What does that tell us about when those situations are saying, I just don't know how I'm going to get through this. I just don't know how the situation is going to play out. When it's like there's nothing that could get me out of this spot. Well, we serve a God who he makes something out of nothing. We got to keep that in mind. This author of Hebrews, he wants to make it really clear. You know, faith, it's not this imaginary thing. It's not wishful thinking. It's not this blind trust that goes against the evidence you have. It's not a leap in the dark. No, faith, real, true faith, it is tangible. Real faith has legs. It's when you're confident and you remember that, you know what, God has the power to do more than I thought he could do. You know what, God has the wisdom uh, to correct situations that I jacked up with all of my own foolishness. When God says he's going to do something, he can be trusted to finish the deal. There's a scene from a movie a lot of you probably know, and it's uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. This was the third one that was made, and in this, we have Harrison Ford He's been looking for the Holy Grail, and the Nazis have basically captured him and his dad, played by Sean Connery, and Indy finds himself at this great abyss. 
He's trying to figure out what he's going to do. He looks in his little book, and he sees the picture and all this research that has been done, and he decides, all right, I'm going to have to just go for this because my dad's going to die if I don't get the grail and let him drink from it. So he takes his foot, he puts it out there, and just when you think he's going to fall, he doesn't fall. You see the relief on his face. He starts to actually be able to breathe. He's a little bit confused at what's going on. And then as the camera starts to pan out, you see, oh, that there's this bridge that he can walk across. And he starts to take another step more confidently than he did. Now, some would maybe argue, you know, oh, well, well it, was just, it was just strictly, you know, it, it was just strictly blind faith. That's what he had to have. No, Indiana Jones didn't have blind faith. Because you know what? He had discovered other things before. He found the Ark of the Covenant. He had gone and survived the Temple of Doom. He and his dad did all the research that went into that notebook. They had done their homework and had a history with this stuff. So was there some risk when he stuck his leg out to take that step? Well, yeah, there was some risk, but, but it wasn't just grounded on nothing. There was some history he was banking on there. His faith had a reason. He knew what he hoped for, and he was confident even when he couldn't see where he needed to go ahead. He knew where he needed to go, but he couldn't see what he was going to land on. So when you keep reading verse 4 through 12, the author starts throwing out examples of this hall of faith. And there's several different ones there that you see. There's, there's Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. These are the revered heroes of the faith. These are folks that they were really flawed, but they were super, super faithful. And there's one verse tucked in there that we need to zoom in on really quick, verse 6. And it says this, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. This is cool because the author basically says, you know that definition of faith that I gave you at the beginning? Well, I'm going to connect the dots on it a little bit. So, well, what is it that we hope for? Well, we hope for the reward that God promises us if we follow Jesus. And, well, who is the God we're supposed to believe in and draw near to? Well, he's the one that we can be sure of even when we can't see him. God created us to live by faith. That was how he wanted us to operate. That is his expectation. When he looks at you, he says, daughter, just trust me. Put your faith in me. When he looks at you, he says, son, you can trust me. You can give me your faith. You can put it in me. I'm going to be good for it. The reality is there is no substitute for faith in Jesus. Any other faith we put, there's no substitute for that because Jesus laid it out pretty clear. John 14, he said he was three things. What did he say? He said, I'm the way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. So if we put faith in anything but Jesus, we lose our way, we miss the truth, and we miss out on life, and we settle for death. St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the, I believe it was the 4th and 5th centuries, he put it this way. I stumbled on this quote this week. He said, faith is to believe what you don't see, and the reward of that faith is to see what you believe. We may have to wait. So we keep forging ahead. Verse 13, let's pick it up there. It says here, all of these people, they were foreigners and strangers on earth. So these folks that he's rattling off, these Hall of Fame people, these women and these men, you know, they, even when death came into the picture, they stayed faithful. 
You know, they knew, we've seen a few of these promises, there's a lot we aren't, but we have enough of a history with God, we trust He's going to fulfill them. I might not be around, but I still get the reward. They got this glimpse of it. And it says they're like people who knew that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They knew that their true home, heaven, that for the moment it was somewhere else. They they just didn't get to experience it yet. There's another movie. For some reason, movies were just on my brain, and I just rolled with it this week. Uh, There's a movie. It's actually the first Star Wars movie, Episode Four: A New Hope. And there's a scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi, the aging Jedi Master, has to fight Darth Vader. And there's tons of fan theories for why this fight has to go down. Um, But ultimately, at the end of the movie, y'all, this movie came out in 1977, okay? Like, my dad got his driver's license the year this movie came out. He probably drove to see this, right? You've had plenty of time, okay? Plenty of time. So basically what happens is Obi-Wan squares off against Darth Vader and draws the attention of all the stormtroopers so that Luke Skywalker, uh, the hero in training, can get on the Millennium Falcon and they can fly him the heck out of there and save his life. And so, regardless of what theory you ascribe to, it's pretty clear Obi-Wan was willing to bow out of the story and let Darth Vader slice him in half and make him into a force ghost because he knew, hey, this story's not about me. I've played my role. Everybody else can play their role in this, and it can work out. That's how we are called to live, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, and we, we see that. Okay, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to have confidence in what I hope for. I'm going to be assured about what I don't see. I'm going to play my role. I'm going to trust I get a reward in the long run. And I'm going to let it ride and trust God will lead other people to do what they need to do. Because faith is confidence in what we hope for and it's assurance of what we don't see. And when we jump to the next little chunk of verses, we don't even have time to mine into this, but basically verses 17 through 32 There are more and more names, more examples of these Hall of Fame members. I mean, you've got Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. These are the heavy hitters of the Old Testament. These are the women and the men of renown. Again, flawed, but really faithful. And then he makes this list, the author, he or she, makes this list and basically says, you want to know some of the stuff that faith enabled God's people to do? You want to know? Let me just lay this out. And this is quite a list. It's a doozy. So hang with me here. We're starting in verse 33. It says, These people, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were persecuted. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. See, faith is a powerful thing when you put your faith in a powerful God. Faith is a very powerful thing when you put your faith in a powerful God. And when you look through that list, some of those examples, they are the best of times. Some of them are the worst of times. But what was the common thread every time? God was always with them, no matter what. 
He could be trusted no matter what the circumstances were. Lions about ready to devour you, shut their mouths. Fiery fury, oh, they walked through it, had the ropes burned off of them, didn't get a scratch. Weakness, uh, turned to strength. Torture and imprisonment, endured it. Death by stones, getting sawed in two swords, faced it. Verse 38 says, the world wasn't worthy of them. So the mere fact that these people did by faith what they did and endured what they endured in this world, that is just a picture of us, of God's grace, as we sit here today. You know, none of us deserve for Jesus to do what he did. None of us deserve that we have a copy of the Bible to even discover that grace. We don't even really deserve to have these examples of people who did this well that we can pattern our life after, but we get the privilege of having this even though we don't deserve it, because it's through these people's faith that we see the God who is unseen. And it gives us courage to face our own challenges. And I think the temptation that we have sometimes is we can think, well, Mike, that was a couple thousand years ago. The world's changed. Things are different now. And what I would push back on is, I would say, you know, is the world so different? Are human beings really that different? Is the way we operate really all that different? There's an organization called Open Doors USA, and they give a voice to the persecuted, the persecuted church. I cannot say that word today. Bear with me, people. They give a voice to the persecuted church uh, just worldwide, and they put out some statistics that I came across these, and it just blew my mind, and I wanted to share these with you. So in the past year, there are over 340 million Christians who are living in places right now where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 340 million people is more than the population of the United States right now. That's how many Christians are living in these horrible conditions right now. And on top of that, last year alone, in the past year, there were 4,761 Christians who have been killed for their faith. On top of that, there were 4,488 churches or other Christian buildings that were attacked. And there are about 4,277 believers who were either detained without trial, were arrested, were sentenced, or were imprisoned. So we still have these examples of these people. The, a lot of these folks, they would qualify in the hall of faith. If God has expanded it when we get to heaven, you're going to see some of these folks' names. And I encourage you, man, if you jump on Open Doors USA on their YouTube channel and see some of these stories of how God is working and the courage he's given these folks, it'll make you go, you know what? I can get through my tough work day. I can deal with that punk at school that I just despise. I can deal with that family member who is toxic and is making me want to rip my hair out every 17 seconds. When you look and you, you, you see the courage of these folks, it's, it's amazing. They have confidence in what they hope for. They are assured of what they haven't even seen yet. They don't even know what tomorrow is going to look like. And this is how the author of Hebrews lands this plane. Verse 39. All these people were commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So all of these folks in the Hall of Fame, they get their props for being faithful. It's acknowledged they didn't really see most of God's promises fulfilled, but they had hope that he could be trusted. And 
what we realize really quick is it's better for us right now. You know how fortunate we are? Because they knew that a Messiah, a Savior was promised. They hadn't seen that Savior yet. But where we stand, we know, oh, that Savior did come. That was Jesus on the cross. He made it possible for our relationship with God to go back together. For centuries, all these Faith Hall of Fame people, they lived under an old covenant that was like a temporary band-aid that said this will help keep you close to God until God's rescue plan can play out a little bit more. Well, we get to stand here thousands of years later and look and say, oh, wow, look at all those additional promises that these people didn't even see fulfilled. We did see them fulfilled, and we get to look ahead towards a future. It's beautiful. And what I think sometimes we forget is, you know, it's easy, and I've said this before, in Shelbyville, people in Shelbyville love to hate on Shelbyville. Maybe it's just a hometown thing, I don't know. But I mean, it's all kinds of stuff. For those of you who compete uh, in athletics for Shelbyville, you know, you hear comments like, yeah, the girls are going to sectionals. I mean, they're probably going to lose. They've lost the last seven years. But I mean, I hope they can do it. You know, it's like we've got an inferiority complex or something, you know, to Greenfield or New Pal, whoever. You know, that, you just hear people, well, you know, the, the parks are just full of drug needles or, or, oh, the businesses, you can't even get good help in this town. You name it. People just spout stuff about this town all the time. But what I think is the clincher, you know, people may not have heard about Shelbyville most places. I've lived in multiple states in the eastern U.S. and all the time, what's your hometown, Mike? Shelbyville. Where is Shelbyville? Well, it's off I-74 and southeast of Indianapolis on the way to Cincinnati. And people are like, oh, okay, cool. And they nod and they move on, right? Most people in the world have no idea what Shelbyville is. But if we're going to really place our hope in the right place and have confidence in God's promise, one of the ultimate promises is that heaven is going to come to earth. And when heaven comes to earth, you know what that means? Heaven is going to encompass what is now Shelby County. This building may not stand here, but heaven is coming here. You are sitting in heavenly territory to be. Now, if that doesn't give us hope as we seek to bring hope and healing and make disciples in this town, I don't know what does. But heaven is coming here, and we have a place in it when it comes here. So what do we do with all this? Well, how about we self-evaluate just a little bit? So the question is not so much, do you have faith? The question that we need to ask is, well, in what have you placed your faith? Or in whom have you placed your faith? Because we all put our faith in something. And many of us here would say, I, I put my faith in Jesus. But does your life really show that? Does it bear that out when you think it through? So if I were to ask... So middle and high schoolers, if every friend bailed on you today and walked out on you, would that impact your faith? Would that make your faith shrivel up? If any of y'all suddenly today, our economy took an especially bad downturn, our retirement account went in the toilet, our financial situation followed suit, what shape would your faith be in today? If you found out that, you know, your preferred political party lost every single seat, every election in the upcoming election cycle? Would that ding your faith? If you found out you had six months to live and your health was going in the toilet, would your faith still be hanging on? 
if that person in your family who's always kind of been like the rock, maybe the grandmother or grandfather who just held things together and squashed all the fights and all the petty stuff and kept the family moving forward, if that person died, just dropped dead right now, would your faith still be intact? You know, because since we have faith in Jesus and since that's better, we can be open-handed with all of these things, our health, our politics, our relationships, our friendships, our bank accounts. We can put our trust in him because faith in Jesus, it's better. There's a man, his name was William Borden. He was the heir to the fortune of the Borden family, the Borden Milling Company. And it's still around today. It's not the monster that it was uh, 100 years ago, but when he lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was one of the biggest companies in the world. And he was the heir. He was the young gun who was going to get to pull the strings. He went to Yale and graduated from there in 1909. Things were looking really good for him. And William, though, had become a Christian. He decided to follow Jesus in his teen years. And he basically said, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to do everything I can to help get the word of Jesus out into the world. So he, over the next few years, the next three or four years, just invested, just gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars in money then, worth much more now, just giving it to missions and all these things. He wouldn't even buy himself a car because I I don't need a car. I can put money towards helping people know Jesus. And eventually, God led him to say, you know, I, I want you to go and be a missionary, and I want you to go and do that and be a missionary to Muslims, introduce Muslims to Jesus. So he was excited. He went to Cairo, Egypt, and he dug in. He started doing ministry. Four months later, he gets diagnosed with spinal meningitis, and he dies at the age of 25. And apparently, right before he died, there came a point where his condition was bad enough. They'd put him on a ship trying to get him to a developed country. I don't know, England, or if they're trying to get him back to the U.S., whatever. Trying to get him to a doctor that could maybe help him and save his life. But it looked pretty, pretty grave. And somebody asked him and said, hey, when you look at everything that you had and the fact that you came overseas and you pretty much gave it all away, that now you have this death sentence of spinal meningitis, what do you have to say about that? And all he had to say was just two simple words. He said, no regrets. No regrets. You can see his tombstone today. It's in Cairo. It's not in a prominent place. I think you have to go like down an alley and make a weird turn, and there's this tree. And in front of this tree, there's the stone, and the grass has grown up. It's not very well kept, supposedly. But on the tombstone is written this little message. It says, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. That described the life of William Borden. So I ask you today, is there another explanation for your life other than faith in Jesus Christ? Is there any other explanation that you would make? Or if you ask somebody else, would anybody else give another explanation for what your life is really all about? What I'm going to challenge us to do as we get ready to celebrate communion together, uh, the band's going to make their way up on stage is this. As you sit, after you, um, you'll, we'll basically in just a couple minutes, you can go to one of the four tables here in the room, and they'll hand you the bread, you can take the cup, 
And as you sit and reflect on what Jesus did, and you remember the sacrifice that he made for us that made reconciliation with God possible, as you do that, I want you to think, because maybe you're in different places with this. If you're someone who came in and said, you know, Mike, I actually think my faith isn't too bad. I think it's growing. It's getting stronger. Awesome. Then celebrate. Just ask yourself, man, why is it that I have this hope in Jesus? What is making it grow? And just reflect on it and just let God just comfort you and strengthen you in that moment. If you're someone who says, you know what, I admit I have some unbelief, kind of like what Brad was talking about on Easter, I want to challenge you to maybe say what the dad said in Mark chapter 9 when he took his son to Jesus and his son had this evil spirit in him that had convulsion. It would drive him into convulsions. It was terrible. And he said, Jesus, if you can do anything, can you just help my boy? And Jesus said, if I can do anything, you know, do you believe I can do this? And the man's response was awesome. He said, oh, I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe you just need to sit, and as you reflect on that, say, you know, Jesus, I've got, I've got some doubts. I've got some unbelief. Will you meet me in those and answer those? If you're here and in this next time, you're like, I don't even know if I'm on board with Jesus. Maybe just ask yourself, okay, well, where is my hope? Do I need to be placing it in Jesus? Does he need to be the explanation for my life? Because at the end of the day, Faith is two things. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. And it's assurance of the things that we do not see. Jesus, I ask that in this time, as we remember what you did for us, as we reflect on your body being broken and your blood being shed, I pray that you will grow our faith, that you will give us hope. I pray you'll give us a confidence in those things that are coming down the line that we just haven't seen materialize yet. I pray you would remind us of who you are and what you've done, of all of these people in this hall of faith that just were incredible examples for us. I pray we will be encouraged. I pray we'll be inspired. I pray that we'll be able to lift up the words to this song to you, knowing that you hear us and knowing that you're with us no matter our circumstances today, Father. Would you let us walk out of here, people who have faith that's just a little bit stronger, folks just holding just a little bit tighter to the hem of your garment, Jesus. In your name we pray all together, boldly, proudly. Amen.